0: The Rural Health Voice, Episode 51, Racism as a Public Health Crisis. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. How does racism contribute to poor health outcomes? Dr. Kevin Harris, from Virginia Commonwealth University, joined me to discuss health inequities. So welcome, Kevin.
1: Glad to be here. Absolutely glad to be here. It's
0: so great to have you on. And, you know, I was looking at at your information um, as related to what you did for our presentation, whatever else, and I I was looking at your job title. You have Associate Vice President for Strategic Initiatives and Engagement, Office of the Senior Vice President for Health Sciences, Virginia Commonwealth University. So wrapping all of that up, what does a VP for Strategic Initiatives and Engagement do? What does your job look like?
1: Right, well, good question. Um, it depends on which day you ask. Uh, so uh, essentially in our vice president's uh, office, uh, uh, we're a central administration on our health sciences campus uh, and really are, um, are connected with each of our five health sciences schools, our massive cancer center, Uh, And uh, the vice, senior vice president for health sciences also serves as the chief executive officer for the health system. So we also have that uh, health system uh, on campus as well. Uh, And so my role, as really the title uh, suggests, uh, is to work between those entities and then also with our main campus uh, uh, and partners in our provost's office, our president's office, inclusive excellence and then and, and so forth uh, is really to uh, help to create opportunities uh, to support uh, university priorities, uh, particularly around student success, national prominence, certainly around diversity and community engagement. Uh, and on the health system side, of course our mission of uh, teaching patient care and research. Uh, and so uh, I essentially seek opportunities to collaborate. Uh, the university has a, a, a strong one VCU, uh, uh, strategic priority, where we are incentivized and encouraged uh, to work across the aisles to work in a, in a, in a disciplinary uh, sort of model uh, and to partner internally um, with VCU community members. Um, but even more importantly, externally, uh, with our community partners in our world as an anchor institution. So my job primarily is to ensure that um, people are connected, resources are connected. Uh, that the priority initiatives that uh, my vice president would set, uh, or others around the university, um, that I'm a part of that solution uh, to having those come into fruition. Now, under my portfolio are a few areas in which I think about each day, uh, and that's diversity uh, as a primary component, um, particularly in the context of uh, how it manifests itself in a healthcare setting and a health training. Uh, education setting, uh, but also community engagement is an integral piece, uh, as well as uh, employee, uh, uh, in terms of employee relations, I work very closely with HR uh, in in ensuring that our environment and our climate is one that is conducive for work and for learning. Uh, And then there's also opportunities to work with um, our pipeline in terms of workforce diversity uh, students who are seeking accommodations from the disability space or in otherwise need academic support. Uh, and also in another student affairs perspective around the student experience, ensuring that our health sciences students across our schools uh, have an experience that, again, is conducive for them learning and then also entering the practice field. Uh, And so those are the primary focus areas. Um, I'm sorry, and I missed one that, how did I miss this? And then health equity. Um, Over the past five years, I've been very engaged uh, and co-lead campus health equity initiative in which we essentially work across all of our schools and really within entities across our university uh, to build a health equity model that looks at training, education, and research. Um, So uh, that's what uh, I'm involved in now, Uh, what's not shown, and I'll just briefly mention, uh, as of June, I was tapped to be the Interim Senior Associate Dean uh, for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, in addition to my uh, AVP role, Uh, and that was to help to stand up uh, within our School of Medicine, uh, a a DEI action framework uh, that our Vice President's Office utilizes for the entire campus. Uh, and so I've had the pleasure of working very closely with the School of Medicine over the past few months from a DEI space.
0: And I would argue you didn't forget health equity; you just recognized <laughs> internally that we're going to spend this whole podcast episode talking about health equity. It was on purpose, exactly. Kevin. It was exactly. on purpose. <laughs> yeah, and you know we've got here you here today because, thankfully for us, you were one of our presenters at our Rural Health Voice conference. And I I went back to look at the presentation again. I was struck you started the presentation with a Rosa Parks quote about how we are all part of the human race. And you mentioned the Human Genome Project. What's the purpose of that project?
1: Yeah. And so essentially, um, again, we think about the Human Genome Project and quite frankly, the landmark Uh, uh, scientific discoveries that have been made over the past few decades, um, largely driven out of the uh, National Institutes of Health, Um, you're talking about having um, an intimate understanding um, of our DNA construct and our our DNA mapping um, that essentially demonstrates to us um, how connected and how similar we are at our most elemental level uh, in our DNA structures. Uh, and so certainly there are some scientific, uh, there's some medical uh, implications for understanding the genome that uh, continues to be uh, uh, explored and exploited. Um, but from my perspective, again, looking at it from uh, the health education, uh, healthcare care perspective and how it might apply in, 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 in on the ground, uh, it begins to allow us to have a framing uh, that really repositions us in this concept of race. Um, in a different light uh, that, uh, you know, we, you know, have different theories about, uh, you know, race and the origins of how each um, demographic group might have originated. But um, but then we try to back into this concept uh, of how we can then come together and use our diversity as a strength. Well, for me, in a diversity arena, uh, it actually helps to position uh, the 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 diversity work according to the accurate way in which it in which it exists it exists, we actually essentially start with more similarity. Uh, and our differentiation uh, is where we then begin to see um, where very different expressions come about. So instead of viewing um, us as different um, uh, innately and then we're having to discover how that difference can work together, uh, the genome project, which so it's told us that there is ninety nine percent much of of who we are is ninety nine percent essentially the same material the same ingredients uh and within that one percent we start to get these variations again it's un- it's unfortunate from a diversity lens that those variations quite frankly have led to policies practices uh, 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 programs and some acts that really have worked to just. Dis- um to, to to make us seem less diverse or to disaggregate our humanity when in fact um the genome project i find is central because we have the starting point that there's much more that draws us together there's much more that we have in common uh in this human experience and that we should be very cautious about how we allow that one percent of difference to drive red- wedges between uh, the work that we do and the progress that we can make uh, and again, I just found it striking that when you really look at some of our most um, prominent civil rights leaders, our most prominent speakers around pushing for uh, our humanity and equity for all, they all recognize that we have a shared and integral humanity uh, and that we must navigate and sustain that and not get caught in the trap of seeing only the things that make us different.
0: So thinking about another great civil rights leader, you know, you included a, a quote from Dr. Yeah. Martin Luther King, the classic of all forms of inequality and justice and in health is the most shocking and inhuman. You know, during the pandemic, one of the comments I've heard from politicians and public health officials is that we all need to wear masks because COVID doesn't discriminate. But if COVID doesn't discriminate, why are we seeing higher rates in the African American population?
1: Mm-hmm. That's that. That is the sixty-four thousand dollar question, and what 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 we begin to understand, and certainly from my personal level, what I'm appreciating uh, is how those structural um, uh, factors come into play, um, and, and from a health equity lens, how um, what we call our social determinants come into play—where we live, work, uh, where we play, where we learn. Um, those are really the drivers. Uh, that be, that can begin to create disparate, and in many cases, disproportionate uh, outcomes, particularly when it comes to our health. Uh, I was just explaining to a colleague today, if I can use this as a, just a practical example, um, we were having a conversation and we were talking about um, how the uh, poverty and socioeconomic status can really become a great divider, uh, particularly think about in this COVID, uh, uh footprint that we're in uh, those that are making a certain level of income with a certain level of education uh with a certain level of of of, of, of employment stability um you know they tend to fare pretty well in these crises granted you know it the, the pandemic uh doesn't um, overlook any particular person in particularly because of class but you have more opportunities to protect yourself you can work from home behind, in the comfort of, of 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 being in front of a zoom. Uh, uh, camera. Uh, you can have your groceries ordered and brought to you instead of having to go out into the stores. Um, you know, you can afford to have um, your kids um, um, have the technology to do remote learning. So there's some, there's some benefits for people who are at a certain income. What I explained to my colleague is that here's where structural issues, particularly structural, structural inequities um, that have been driven largely by race uh, and ethnicity, Uh, come into play. And some of those families where um, uh, it was all being equal, a certain level of income income would afford you those opportunities um, in large portions of African-American families, in Hispanic families, Native American families, where there have been some structural uh, challenges attributed in many cases to their race because of policies that have been enacted or cultural norms that have been accepted and have taken some time to overcome. Well, we have a broader, larger number of, of, of family members and loved ones who might have been in lower income positions. Again, it's just as how the data is what the data presents to us. And so they're forced to then go out into the pandemic in ways that some of us with the Uh, 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 that might be from a different demographic may not have. And so we're now having to take that, let's say, $65,000 that we may have as a household income and literally spread it amongst other family members and in some cases supporting two and three other households because those individuals have lost their their, 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 their bedrock, they've lost their job. Um, and they can't go back because they were a waitress at a restaurant um, or they were a, a construction worker and the projects because of finances have been stalled. So you start to get these structural inequities. And so you can say, well, yeah, every you can make a policy. Everybody who makes a certain income, um, you know, you don't get the you don't get the 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 stipend that's coming, right um, that that's in this new uh, economic bill, right? You don't get that distribution. But then not realizing that in some demographics and in some communities, that person who might not have met that threshold on paper is literally sustaining a family network um, because their income uh, is, is now the driver and the primary income for not just them, but maybe their mother and their father, their grandparents, because we're a lot of us in multi generational homes. Maybe it's that cousin who just lost their job. Uh, maybe it's that sister or brother. So so again, that's why we have to look deeper. We can't just say here everybody is equal. You have to peel that back and say, now let's look if things are distributed in the same way based upon certain demographics, based upon certain slices of the data. And what you'll find is that people are disproportionately impacted. Um we have medical students um, you know, from African-American uh, Latino backgrounds. uh, Who, in in greater proportions, not exclusively, but in greater proportions, we're finding having to also be the caretaker for a parent or the caretaker for a sibling. And so, in addition, so when we make policy at our medical school about what students are asked to do in this pandemic, we can't have a, a universal policy that doesn't factor in that some students have a disparate proportion of responsibility based upon the structural issues that they're facing. That's what we want about. That's what health equity is about. And that's what Dr. King was talking about. These inequities, they tend to come not from commission, but actually, largely now from omission, that we are just not asking that second level question, that second order question that says, okay, yes, we got a policy that works for most, but does it work for everyone? And it's that question that gets you to equity.
0: Well in your presentation you were talking about the difference between equality versus equity versus justice and I was looking at that great graphic you had of the apple tree and making you know systemic adjustments to make sure everyone has access yeah. and it occurred to me justice would be expensive how how do we how do we address the fact that true justice would be expensive for everybody um
1: well, the flip side of that coin is that let's let's count out the cost of injustice so so let's let's put the burden on injustice instead of justice. So yes, yeah, so let, even in the diagram you mentioned, uh so yes, justice could be expensive, certainly uh restructuring and mounting up the tree, and for those who can't see it, um there's a a, a picture where the, uh, two young kids are uh, on ladders of equal um size. Um, but the tree had a tilt, and so the the tree is stood up straight, and boarded up, and corded off, and now you know each stoop, each of those kids can get access to the apples equally. Okay, so right, that's expensive because you're dealing with a structural issue. Um, but let's go back to the inequality model. Let's go back to a model that says that justice uh, is negotiable. Um, So now we have, in in, in that model, uh, one of the kids is getting an apple, the other kid, because of the way the tree is leaning, does not get an apple. So now let's start adding up the cost. So one of those children now uh, is working malnourished. Um, And so the kid that's malnourished is now also undereducated because you can't educate a hungry child. All right. And so now that uneducated, malnourished child, um, understanding Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, uh, is going to do what that child needs to do to get at least some basic sustenance. And so now that child becomes an issue within the community because someone in the community has to figure out what do we do with this child? All right. And and, and in some cases, that child then becomes uh, a challenge to society. All because we didn't fix the structural issue in the beginning that allowed that child not to have access to a, a fundamental uh, uh, sustaining aspect of life, which is food. So I would, I would throw the question back which do you think is more costly? Um, we're going to pay it one way or the other. <laughs> we're going to either pay those costs on the front end and, and, and have some structural changes that can allow individuals to, to reach their best potential. Or we're going to ignore those structural changes primarily, or maybe think we're prudent and cut costs, but then we're going to catch it on the back end, right? It's that old conundrum, right? How much does it take to educate a child, to provide a child with free lunch if they can't afford it, if their family can't afford it, so that they can be educated? How how much does that cost versus then having someone that will support uh, five times that amount in the prison system or some other social services that we need? So as a society, I think we got to grapple with, we have a very short myopic uh, approach to dealing with social issues and structural issues. We can only see five feet in front of us and not sort of look around the corner and say, wait a minute, if we don't deal with this, there's actually a bigger and more sustained cost and more systemic cost in the out years. So, and this is not a race or demographic issue. This is any child, any human being that is not that is stripped of fundamental access access to fundamental things for their survival any person in that situation will most likely become uh an added cost to society and so when are we going to pay for it on the front end or the back end
0: back to the old saying of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure it's worth a pound of cure absolutely yeah, you know, a term that I hear quite a bit when people are talking about equality and equity and justice that you did not use in your presentation. I want to ask you about. Talk to me about the concept of microaggressions. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, right. So that's uh, I think Dr. Chu out in, in in California. But microaggressions again is this concept um, that um, we tend to look for these grand, sort of explicit, um, clearly identifiable. Um, acts of, uh, of whether it be racism or sexism or ageism, you know, whatever ism you wanna to attach to it, right? We kind of tend to focus on or build policy and structures around addressing those obvious things, those those evident things. Um, microaggression actually um, talks about this concept of death by a thousand cuts, right? That's a framing for it. So it's those slights, that might happen um, uh, from day to day, uh, that some might even feel like they're they're, they're benign. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's being asked when you go into a grocery store uh, and you're dressed in a suit and a tie uh, and looking as a professional African-American man. Uh, and it's on that day when everything else is being challenged. You're actually frustrated because we're in COVID, and you're going in the grocery store, putting yourself and your family at risk, and you have that person who trails you around the store. Like on that particular day, that what would be considered on some days, you know, something you just blow off. Well, when that continues to happen over the course of a lifetime, those microaggressions, those micro mistreatments, those micro assaults, they tend to accumulate and add up. And at some point you reach a tipping point. Right, And so well, what microaggressions ask us to be is just more conscience and more in the presence uh, of some of the things we say, some of the jokes we say that we typically, you know, they're just throwaway comments, um, usually that occur when we don't know what to say to a person. So we go to, to we fall back to things that are stereotypical or slights uh, or in an in a, in a in a, in a educational space Um, You know, we don't uh, emphasize or we say things in a medical class that, uh, well, that's just a race issue. And we've had students that say that, oh, well, sickle cell, that's just a race issue. Uh, Not thinking about that, no, it may also be racism. It also may be a system. And it may not just be the fact that I have a certain um, degree of uh, melanin in my skin. It literally may be because there are also systems at play. Um, And so those things over time, can begin to accumulate and they begin to affect the psyche. And at some point, you know, you get that tipping point that I mentioned uh, in in which it begins to then affect your health in terms of stress, right? When you're constantly under threat condition or a stressful condition, uh, our our science and medicine tells us that that has a physiological uh, impact on you and can take you out. And so um, uh, so the research around microaggressions is beginning to pay a bit more attention to what are those small things, sometimes unnoticeable um, for many, um, but over time it can become a, a real uh, uh, potent uh, and, and influential set of factors that can literally drive uh, someone um, past the tipping point.
0: Right. And there's an increasing amount of research that's saying microaggressions can directly lead to You know, increased blood pressure, increased heart disease, all of those underlying health conditions, um, which in turn makes you more susceptible to COVID.
1: It makes you susceptible again, but it goes back to again how you connect in the dots, right? And so um, in an isolated, uh, you know, perspective, you know, you might be able to just kind of dismiss the fact that, well, microaggressions, that's a separate thing. But right in the context of also already dealing with other structural issues that you're facing. Uh, to have that layer on top of it, again, creates that situation where either the body gives in um, or you give in to some impulses that are not um, from a high angels.
0: And many of the examples that you gave to demonstrate the differences in health outcomes in Virginia focused on Richmond. Mm-hmm. And of course, being uh, the Virginia Rural Health Association, we've got to ask, do you know if racial inequities in rural communities are being studied by anyone?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm starting with, with the Virginia Royal Health Association. But um, again, I also shared uh, further down. So I, I started with framing the health equity work, uh, the landscape, certainly with the Richmond community, which I live in, which uh, VCU Health System um, has its main entity. Now, let's remember VCU Health. We also have, uh, uh, you know, satellite office or satellite locations in places such as South Hill right, um, that's a bit more, more um, certainly not urban. Uh, so I did put the county health rankings for rural areas in the state as well. Uh, and that was actually on slide 15, where I touched on the fact that when you begin to look at health outcomes and then health determinants and where some of our more uh, rural areas or rural uh, geography falls, just look at Bath County 57th uh, in terms of health outcomes ranking. 41st in terms of uh, social determinants. Uh, My wife is from Bath County. We go there quite often. uh, And so I get to see in real time uh, how uh, the lapse of resources, or in some cases, some old cultural mores that still exist um, that uh, might prohibit some progression uh, for certain demographics in that area, still have an impact on people. I looked at Bristol, 121st, Uh, Out of 127 in terms of health outcomes, uh, 130th, I'm sorry, 130 is the the, the max. They are 130th uh, uh, in terms of of dealing with social determinants, uh, and that's Brunswick County. If you go down to Wise County, uh, 125th in health outcomes, 120th. Uh, in terms of social determinants, the impact that's having on health. So um, our rural counties absolutely have some challenges. Uh, in many cases, very unique challenges, uh, and some of it tied to just having the basic resources, the act, the actual availability of certain practitioners, certain specialties. Um, you know, at easy access, you know, how far are you having to drive to the nearest healthcare facility that can actually treat what you are presenting with? Um, so things that some of us may take for luxury when um, you have three health systems within a five-mile radius to choose from, um, all comprehensive, all able to treat a myriad of issues versus in some of our rural counties where actually the actual ability to go to a place that can actually deliver care in the way that you need it might be a luxury. Those are are areas in which um, certainly research and attention has been given and the county health rankings that drive a lot of the work around health equity uh, is available. That data is available for our rural counties. Now, what I would say, and again, just based on my understanding and experience, there certainly is a lot more work though that needs to be done. Um, There is a, I would say, concentration, when you think about where our our public institutions, our research institutions are. Again, when you think about where our academic health centers are, um, there unfortunately is a concentration of the thinking and the resources um, uh, centralized in our urban uh, areas, Um, maybe a little bit more so now in our suburban areas. So there is an opportunity, I think, to do some expansion of, of that work in our rural areas and having some, wouldn't it be nice to have a flagship institution, um, more than one actually, in a very rural area, right? Um, um, where there's dire need uh, and to have brain power and resources poured into that arena. Uh, 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 wouldn't that be a, a great way to start uh, having those institutions service anchor institutions in rural communities the way that we discuss anchor institutions in many of our urban settings.
0: Absolutely. We'd love to have that level of infrastructure available. Yeah,
1: it will take some will and commitment, um, again, and reapplication re- of dollars uh, from our leadership, from our political leadership, um, but, um, but it's possible. And again, it goes back to what we talked about, Beth. When are you going to pay the cost? <laughs> so, uh, you know, would we want to invest on the front end and bear the cost of setting up those structures and maybe even having those structures because of limited patient bases, um, have some need some more financial support from a social system, or do we continue to wait until our rural communities are impacted uh, in ways that we're not able then to get to them to care for them, such as what we're finding with COVID. COVID tracked initially in urban, highly populated, densely populated areas, but look at where we are now. Um, now we're starting to see those numbers tick up in our rural communities. But guess what? The resources um, did not come with the virus, right? And so now we're having to get real creative in figuring out how to get those resources out to uh, individuals who uh, are now in desperate need.
0: Well, and thinking more about, you know, some of those big system changes there's been considerable discussion at the federal level of moving to some sort of nationalized healthcare system. You know, whether you call it Medicare for all, or universal healthcare, or whatever name you want to stick on it. If that happens, what kinds of things do you think should be incorporated to create a more equitable system?
1: And that's interesting. That's a, unfortunately, that's a highly politically charged concept of yes, the national is. system system. And that is the true unfortunate part, because um, we aren't able to, as a society in this particular country, um, uniquely in this particular country, uh, among our developed nations, um, we're essentially the only one that's still grappling with this issue. If health, is health care right? Should health care be afforded to everyone? And unfortunately, until that question is resolved in the affirmative, we're going to continue to have these struggles. Um, But if we were to come to some consensus, whether, yeah, healthcare is a right, then that actually forces a different calculus in terms of the solutions we arrive at. Uh, And so we wouldn't be talking about rural areas um, having a lack of certain healthcare facilities and resources, um, because we would have been positioned to say that those community members, our citizens, have a right to these resources. And maybe make some different decisions about some of the other things that we invest in as a nation. Uh, So that that certainly is an important question. Um, One of some of the things that we would need to focus in, certainly health equity uh, in that system would still be an important factor. Um, So uh, national health care or universal health care still wouldn't uh, mitigate the fact that there are uh, structural issues that we'd have to To address, And the reason is this, when you look at our county health rankings and you look at health equity and social determinants of health, you know, what we find is that some 20 percent of our health outcomes are governed by what happens in the clinical setting. So even if we were to place a health system of high quality in, in a reasonable distance in every community through some nationalized model, even if we were to do that, That still will address about 20% of many of the issues that the patient populations will face. Um, Some 70 and 80% of our health outcome is driven by things that happen outside of the clinical setting. So we would still have to address education, poverty, food insecurity, housing issues, transportation issues, So again, national health care doesn't relieve us from still needing to apply a health equity model.
0: So in your presentation, you mentioned that Virginia has not yet declared racism as a public health crisis, but there are efforts underway to encourage the state to do so. How can VRHA members as individuals, as well as VRHA as an organization, help support those efforts?
1: No, thank you. Actually, yeah, um, it's so it's So the data is important as well, and not just the quantitative data, um, but also the narratives, the qualitative data, um, um, providing uh, in very systematic ways um, people's lived experience uh, and how um, they are impacted, uh, particularly around issues around race and poverty uh, uh, and other, other social factors. Um, I'm having, it. in fact, the rural communities and, and the VRHA could play a, a particular uh, role uh, in that, you know, we put people in boxes or we put issues in boxes, right? And so we say, okay, rural, and, 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 and most people, but and most people, and many people, they might uh, immediately raise uh, sort of an image uh, of predominantly white communities, um, you know, farming communities, um, you know, we have our impressions when we say rural, and some of the stereotypes are are, are, are not even worth repeating. Um, but knowing so, having a wife from Bath County and being able to go there and, and see for myself firsthand um, what some of the opportunities are and what some of the challenges are, um, race still is a factor uh, uh, in our rural communities. Um, African-Americans still somehow manage within uh, a lessly dense population to still be clustered together. I've been fascinated by that. Uh, uh, And then uh, there's still uh, sort of certain customs traditions um, that uh, that we still are still addressing from an African-American from a Latino perspective. So think about the Latino populations that are expanding in our rural communities. We're even seeing it in our Richmond areas and our our outer Richmond areas, uh, Southside Richmond and other areas where we're getting growing Hispanic populations. They're bringing a whole different cultural expression to those communities. Uh, And in many cases, those cultural expressions are either going to be embraced or they're going to be repelled. So they start to create these factions and these divisions um, that further complicate how we address issues around health and safety uh, and opportunity. So, um, so if we can begin to, begin to understand in each of our communities um, how these issues actually play out on the ground, not just get captured by the numbers, because we'll see some quantitative reports and we'll say, oh yeah, well the data point here could be better, these outcomes could be better, but uh, in some cases there were not enough of this population to even, you know, sort of reference it. When in fact, when you visit those those places and you get the stories, you hear that families are being impacted um, both locally and broader than that. We're in Richmond and yet what happens to our family in Bath County affects us. It affects us psychologically. It affects us in, t- in many cases through our resources. Um, so, so there's a connected world. And if we can begin to paint the picture that there is no rural America uh, to be sort of corny, but there's no rural America and urban America There's really one America that is just expressed in different ways. And we kind of need a model that kind of captures that and particularly around issues of race that can get masked, particularly masked in rural areas. Um, uh, And if we can bring those out, um, I think we have a better opportunity to view this, address this issue holistically.
0: So we've got the concept of declaring a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. What are some other things you think we could do to address race-based health inequities? Can we you know focus our efforts on changing national policies, or is this a case of needing to be deeply involved in local government such as you know planning and zoning boards? You know what what makes the most sense for time and effort?
1: Yeah, great. It, it's well, it's clearly a multifactorial issue. and so you know uh, you know ideas and and efforts in one. Particular area is is not gonna is not gonna um, solve the problem. Certainly, there's a policy agenda that needs to be set, and in many cases, certain certain policies are revisited. Uh, you know, particularly around um and education would be one one perfect example because we do understand that educational attainment has implications for health outcomes uh, through our social determinants of health model. So when we have communities that um, uh, education is funded uh, using uh, revenues from property tax, and then you have you know communities where uh, there's a high rental uh, population or there's a high public uh, 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 you know institutions such as VCU, who owns a lot of property and not paying taxes, right? Um, so when you have those structures, then what happens is that you find communities that are poorer receiving poorer education. It's not even, you know, a mystery. Um, if you're funding our education as a policy, if you're funding it by a revenue from property taxes and you have a high rental, uh, a low property value and a high, highly structured public institution um, that's sucking up those resources or not providing the resources, then absolutely you're going to have a school system that is likely ill-funded and and ultimately subpar. Uh, and that be, so those kids and those families start off the race um, in the bottom of a of a social determinant structure. They start the race off coming out of the gate having to deal with an educational attainment issue that will have implications for not only the ability uh, to be mobile in the society and to advance, but also the impacts that I have on the health. So we gotta look, we can start at education policy, but then there's criminal justice policy. So from the policy arena, you'd wanna look holistically, but surgically, and this is where um, I think the opportunity may lie, to really unpack policy and begin to look at it, and I would even suggest from an anti-racism lens uh, that Ibram that, that Kendi uh, uh, talks about, but begin to unpack policy uh, in each arena and the experts and, and others who are coming in with a diversity equity lens, others that are coming in with a justice lens, put that interdisciplinary group together and begin to unpack, is this policy, um, first of all, has it even been checked from its origination, because maybe it was made to address an issue that no longer exists. But let's say it's still a valid policy. Is it functioning in a way that is equitable? Is it producing and fostering disparate incomes? That's on the policy piece. But then we got to pull back and look at our social systems and our social structures. uh, And how are we building services uh, that connect us and support us where the needs really are? So, you know, you can't just kind of look at policy. You got to look at what's happening on the ground Uh, with our services. Are they adequately funded? Um, Are they adequately resourced to understand their population? Or are they just um, there as a resource with generic services that, quite frankly, aren't addressing the needs of the population that they are purported to serve? So it's going to take also people looking at our social and our support structures and unpacking that. And asking the question, is it functioning equitably? First of all, is it functioning in a way that's relevant for our times? Because we have these legacy structures that in some cases might not have gone, uh, inter- uninter- they've gone uninterrogated. And we don't know whether or not the original tent, intent actually addresses our relevant situations. And so that has to be unpacked. Uh, and there are professionals and experts that you can put to bear. If we could have more of a collective approach and a holistic approach, you can put those toward those issues. But then there is the piece um, that is, is, is that individual, um, that at the community level, and then at the household level, and then at the individual level. Um, so this, these issues aren't just gonna be fixed top down. In fact, in many cases, I believe the problem is that we approach them top-down. Um, so if we can begin to look at those models where we build people up um, individually within communities, one home at a time, build back those structures. And I use the example of, and we go back, some of us who, who might have a few years under our belt, we go back to this village raising the child. And I can just merely go back to my childhood, which I remind people, it's not history, if I can remember it. So I can go back to my childhood and I can look at my family didn't have a lot of money. We weren't rich by any definition, but we were rich in terms of what our community provided. And so I don't have I don't remember having friends that just went hungry. Because quite honestly, my grandmother fed a number of people. I've ate at a number of my friends' homes. If you were hungry as a child, you got fed in our community. So some of it is going to have to return back to that, that, that position that at the community level, community by community, if we can strengthen communities and then by default begin to strengthen households, then we also have an opportunity where the top down approach can kind of meet a grassroots approach. Uh, and everyone has skin in the game. That's it's It sounds Pollyannish, but, um, and it would be, except for the fact that there was a period in which some of us can remember our community worked that way. And so it's just a matter of now, can we remember how to get back there? So that then when the politicians are doing their piece and they're using their expertise, when our clinicians and our practitioners, our social scientists are doing their piece, We're back at the community level, a level building capacity so that we can meet in the middle.
0: Absolutely. Everybody together. I think that's one thing that, you know, rural communities, probably their best strength is each other. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. And that's what I, in fact, that's what I enjoy. There is a connectedness. It's almost like a grittiness (laughs) um, that you find to survive and to support each other. You do see that. You do get that spirit. Uh, At least I do when I, when I visit, um, particularly Bath County.
0: All right. So wrapping up a question that I ask every guest, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America?
1: I would focus on technology. I think right now, I think right now um, um, with the way that our world is constructed and dependent and reliant on technology. I think the technology gaps and the technology deserts that we have um, in, our, in, in our rural communities, I think if we don't address that, um, then even some of these uh, innovative and creative solutions that we might come by, we still will not be able to deliver them because the infrastructure won't be there. To do so. So I'll give you the example telehealth. So we've learned quite a bit in this COVID experience uh, about the opportunities uh, for telehealth to extend our care. Uh, uh, There's a stat at VCU, and I'm being very loose with the numbers, um, but something, you know, some 60 or 70 telehealth appointments per week and, you know, some low number. And now it's well over 4,000 while we're in COVID, right? So now think about telehealth in the rural community. And we just had this experience. So my wife and I went uh, to spend a few days uh, at, 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 at her mom's home in Bath County. Uh, and uh, it just so happened that the weather was a bit tricky uh, and we weren't able to get internet. The internet had, 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 and it was a weak internet signal anyway. We weren't able to get a phone signal with our Verizon phones. We literally have to go to the edge, down to the edge of the walkway to talk on the phone, to get a signal. And so that brought to me, I said, so what if one of us were to get really sick right at this moment in the midst of COVID, right? So the nearest hospital uh, that would be able to even probably address is in Allegheny. It's about a 45 minute to a 50 minute drive. So that's our first challenge. But we don't even have communication to to actually reach out (laughs) (laughs) So we literally would have to just get it in the car and start driving. (laughs) But what if you don't have a vehicle (laughs) and you needed to to get uh, uh, some medical care? I started thinking about that when we didn't have some things that we take for granted in our home in Richmond. And I thought, you know, so how can we even do comparable, competent telehealth when there are many communities who structurally don't have access to, to broadband? and to high speed like fiber optic uh, networks. How can we begin to even think about telehealth as being a mode of of, of expanding healthcare when you don't have the resources or the vehicles to deliver it? So if I could do one thing, I would level set everyone with technology. At least that opens up the opportunity for some of the innovation to actually be um, sort of delivered at a macro level. With no, with no one left, no community uh, left behind. That, that's the one thing I would do if you gave me, gave me a choice is to level set around technology.
0: And as someone who does not have broadband access in my own home, I 100% agree.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is, I, I felt it firsthand, it was a visceral sort of experience um, because we're there and we were just literally trapped. Um, and for my kids, I mean, it was traumatic because they weren't able to watch one of their favorite TV shows. <laughs> so we were trying to convince them to look at, you know, videos uh, we were able to, 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 that we downloaded that certainly weren't for kids. And we were trying to, you know, mute it out. And so we can at least have some entertainment <laughs> after we read to each other. But, you know, but we couldn't get that. And so they were traumatized
0: <laughs> by oh,
1: mercy, by experience. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Kevin.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. This is important work. Uh, I hope the conference went well. Uh, I know it was instructive. I looked at your list of speakers, uh, and I can't imagine the wealth of information that was shared. Uh, And again, um, any way that I can support the work that you're doing, count me in.
0: Thank you. That's Dr. Kevin Harris promoting equity in technology access as a way to have equity in healthcare access. Dr. Harris was one of the speakers at our recent Rural Health Voice Conference. To view the video presentation that led to this interview, visit vrha.org, select Rural Health Voice Conference under the Events tab and register for the event. You can choose to watch just Dr. Harris or all five of our excellent speakers. This presentation was sponsored by Anthem Health Keepers. The Rural Health Voice Conference and this podcast are sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health.